Hi, my name is uh, Mauro Fiore. I was a cinematographer on uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. Hi, my name is Darren Guilford. I'm the production designer on Spider-Man No Way Home. And this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli and today we speak with production designer Darren Guilford and cinematographer Mauro Fiore from Spider-Man No Way Home. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for having us. Thank you. Clearly a ton to talk about, and we've got a lot of questions from our audience, so I know you guys are excited about this episode. But before we get there, I just want to quickly mention our sponsor, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at filmmakersacademy.com. And encourage you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So it is a rare situation for us here at Go Creative Show that we get to talk to both a production designer and a cinematographer together on the same show. So this is really, really exciting for us. And um, particularly because I want to get to uh, get to the the combination of the two, you know, the collaboration between the two of you guys. You both worked together on Spider-Man No Way Home. And Darren, I'd like to start with you. As production designer, what is your collaboration like between the cinematographer and yourself? Well, it's a critical, critical relationship. Uh, and I had a, just an absolute joy working with Mara. Uh, our first film together. I hope we have many more uh, in our future. But, uh, you know, it's a very uh, integrated relationship. I mean, uh, you know, I have got to uh, kind of conceive the sets with obviously our director and the producing team. And as we start to go through that, you know, uh, having Mara's input in the conception of the sets is, is critical, especially light. I mean, Mara's always talking about light. He needs light. We need plenty of light in, uh, in, in every aspect of our, of our sets and making sure he's got plenty of room to work, uh, plenty of, uh, you know, the compositions that are going to help tell the story, um, you know, and it, it, it goes down to the fiber of, 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 of everything we design. Uh, you say it with you know, disdain, Darren. You're like, he needs no, light. He no, needs light. He no, needs light. No, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, I want to support. I want to supply him with everything he needs and his team needs, um, and it's really important. Um, I mean, that that relationship is just really, really critical. So, uh, as we're conceiving sets in the art department, you know, it's not just about how things look and how pretty they are, but how how they're going to be fo- uh, photographed. How we are going to be able to. Uh, you know, capture the scenes and the story elements that we need uh, in a way that is artistic and beautiful, but also, uh, you know, relatively as easy as can be uh, in a very complicated shooting schedule and in a shooting day. So it's not just uh, designing the sets, it's also kind of helping design the production and how to make it uh, as seamless for all the other departments as possible. Now, Mauro, for you, I mean, like Darren was saying, it's you need light, you need this, you need that. So when you, when you go on to these sets, um, now I know largely there's some collaboration, certainly, but I think a lot of these sets, at least in prior conversations I've had with production designers, the sets are fairly conceived before the cinematographer gets involved in some, you know, in some at some points. So when you come on to the set, when you start working with Darren on this on Spider Man. Are you immediately faced with a situation where you kind of have to make changes in order to accommodate lighting? 
Well, I mean, uh, the collaboration, since we have plenty of time, um, especially on a film of this scale, uh, is, you know, happens very early on. As everything is conceived and everything is like pre we're in discussion as to like how we're going to actually physically make the film. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, interaction between myself and Darren, the production designer, and everybody in his department. Uh, if he's not able to answer my question, there's a, plenty of like art directors or people along the way that uh, you know are there uh, for every single question. And also, um, uh, you know, collaboration is crucial because of the fact that there's there are so many visual effects in a film like this that uh, the visual effects supervisor has to be involved in every discussion, and we have to sort of like. Uh, find a way for all of us uh, to come up with a successful project in the end. So it's really just, you know, um, it has to work. Yeah, yeah. Neither of you are strangers to a large-scale movie like this. But when you know that you're going to be working on the next Spider-Man, does it, it does something kind of scare you a little bit? Do you get a little nervous about anything? Do you are you Do you get a little... I don't know. I mean, just knowing that you're jumping into such a huge franchise like that. Mara, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, it doesn't really scare me, but I realize uh, whether it is Spider-Man or Avatar, the amount of like uh, dedication and creativity that you have to really throw onto a project like this um, and be able to react uh, because there's changes along the way uh, that happen. It's not like we have we have a clear idea what we're doing towards the beginning of the film with the script, but then there's a lot of changes that happen, and you have to be able to interact with those changes or, or react to those changes quickly. So uh, that's the part that's kind of like I I have to have the energy. Not that I'm going to be overwhelmed. Everything has to be approached sort of like step by step, but um, that's really more of the uh, you know. The overcoming that that I guess that slight fear. And Darren, I saw you kind of smirk when I asked that, so I have a feeling that you're in agreement that there's got to be something you're a little bit nervous about stepping into a project like this. You know, and I I actually, if I'm not a little nervous, I don't think I'm comfortable. Like I I, I need to be on edge <laughs> a little bit as I take on these projects. I I, I, I take on this job as such a, um, a you know such a privilege to work on these IPs and uh, how passionate the fans and the people are about these movies. Uh, and I just, I, I, I just want to, you know, give it, do it, do the, do it, do the justice to the project uh, as they come along. Um, yeah. So, I mean, a project like this is daunting. It was my, my first superhero movie too, which I've been wanting to get into and, and dive in for a while. And this was the perfect one for me for a bunch of reasons, but uh yeah, it was a bit daunting, um, but I, you know, I knew the, the the first moment I met with John Watts, and he kind of pitched me the concept uh, of uh, of the three Spider Men. I was in, I was all in, uh, and I was I was very very passionate about it from day one, uh, and you know, assembling my team and my crew. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, you, you you can't be intimidated by it. You have to, um, you know, it's like eating an elephant one bite at a time. You have to kind of take it. Uh, slow and, and let it come to you. Uh, but yeah, I think nervous is, is, is a place where I'm actually pretty comfortable at the beginning of a project. I like to be, I like to be tested. I like to be, uh, you know, kind of, you know, pushed. And this yeah. one was definitely at that level. Well, being adaptable, like you said, Mar, I mean, it's, you guys were one of the first films to come back after 
COVID. And you had a major disruption. I mean, so much so that the original director of photography wasn't able to do the film. So, I mean, Mara, you came in kind of still at the beginning, but that right there is a major point where you kind of have to be (laughs) adaptable. Um, First of all, talk to me about that call. I mean, what what happened? When you, when you found out that you were going to be taken over for this, something that you weren't intending on doing, you weren't even booked for, I mean, what kind of what kind of feeling comes over you when something like that happens? Well, it's a very interesting story because uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the crew was already hired on the film. So the whole camera department sort of started the film uh, with the other director of photography. And all of a sudden, they were they were without a job. So the first AC, uh, Bill Coe, I can say his name, Bill Coe, recommended me to the producers as, a, as an option to, uh, we had worked together in the past and he, we had a really great experience. So he recommended me to the producers uh, on the project that the producer said, well, we'll put him on the list, but you know, <laughs> you will get him in there. All right. No promises. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's where my story kind of begins. And then, I knew that if I wanted to do the film, I had to be one of the first uh, people that interviewed because it was going to, you know, it was going to happen right away. Uh, John's such a nice man uh, to speak to. And like, he's so excited and uh, so uh, down to earth and his approach that, you know, it was a really great interview. And, you know, he uh, it was very important for him that he really had a good time on the project and that, you know, things moved smoothly and everybody got along and there wasn't any screaming. And it was like, that was like very crucial to him. And but now, uh, but sorry to interrupt, but I'm curious specifically about the fact that you you referenced the fact that you had a lot of time to on a film like this. You have a lot of time. My guess is that a lot of that time was kind of cut short because of when you first got involved. I mean, were a lot of the preparations done before you even? I mean, you said the crew was booked. So, like, how, how do you kind of jump onto a project where a lot of the prep has already happened? Well, the crew was booked, but not necessarily like obviously they left it up to me as to once I was hired, who are the people you want to work with? Yeah. Uh, and so I decided to really hang on to the crew because they had already started working. They had already started building, you know, and uh, preliminarily already started uh, on the project. Uh, so I, I just say a lot of time because as the more time that you have, the more you're able to like adjust things and make things clearer. And so that time, it seemed like a lot of time, but eventually turned out to be like not enough time because of the fact that, you know, those changes that are made and those sort of like tweaks and story points and um, assembling of the final script, um, all that time was spent sort of like reacting uh, to to those changes, you know, uh, major changes uh, that happened along the way. So that's, yeah, I say plenty of time because like, you know, a film like this compared to, let's say, one that I had been on uh, right before that, which was like in Morocco, a uh, $10 million film was like you get three weeks prep and we're filming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's a little bit more involved. That's what I mean by that. How did this sudden change affect you, Darren? I mean, not only obviously COVID coming through and stopping production, but then having the cinematographer be swapped out. Uh, it was pretty seamless for, from our standpoint, <clears throat> but I got to give Morrow a lot of credit. I mean, I don't know that many DPs that would be that um, uh, accepting to taking on an entire crew that most people he hadn't really worked with before. But a lot of these people were committed. They had rented 
you know, apartments and, 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 and this is the show they had taken and, uh, Morrow obligated, uh, or, or, uh, you know, respected the, you know, that. And I think that was an amazing choice and it kind of spoke to his character right away. Um, and I thought that was a, a really noble thing to do right out of the gate. But yeah, I mean, it's you know, it was great to have Mara. I mean, I remember there was that there was that kind of uh, interstitial time where we had lost Seamus and we were kind of floating a little bit blind. And it was great when Mara came in because as soon as he came in, uh, you know, we could confirm a lot of decisions uh, and just make sure we were on track. Uh, and he was really amenable to uh, you know everything we had done, you know, uh, and he seemed to be excited uh, and enthusiastic about the project. And it was great. He came in. Um, it was just, a, it was a, it was a breath of fresh air for us and, and got us going right away. But I mean, to speak to some of the, the, the things that Mara was talking about, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of changes that were happening, not only from story character, uh, but just the, because philosophical, of the, because of COVID shutting you down, you're because saying. of COVID uh, yes. and because, you know, and, and that's definitely related to, uh, what Seamus stepped aside. But, uh, yeah, I mean, our, our, our whole philosophical approach originally was going to be a, a significant location movie, a lot of locations in New York, around Queens. All of that had to change, and we had to absorb all of that into our studio footprint. So those are big changes. Those are huge changes to have to figure out how to accommodate and make work. And we took, we took advantage of every square inch of the studio that we could. I mean, we were building in alleys and, uh, you know, sets, exterior sets that we'd build through the elephant doors that would go into the sound stages. Uh, we would change over sound stages. Every stage got turned over at least once, maybe even a couple of, maybe even three times. Huge backlot builds that were torn down and then rebuilt. Uh, so it was a very complicated show. Uh, and again, I think because of COVID, uh, we had this incredible crew led by John Watts uh, and his kind of approach and his, uh, you know, his his demeanor. Uh, and I think everybody had a tremendous amount of respect for each other. We know we were working through a really, really difficult period in our industry. We definitely felt like we were on the cutting edge of helping to establish and figure out how to kind of get through this new production paradigm. Uh, and there was just an incredible amount of compassion and, 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 and patience on a crew that I'd never seen before. Um, and, uh, and a lot of that came from Morrow and his department. And Morrow, now you know, coming into a project that had intended on being on location for quite a bit of it, and then now kind of putting it into your studio environment, is that something that is more appealing to you? Are you do you do you prefer having the control of a studio, or do you kind of like the on location stuff? Well, um, I actually like the on location stuff uh, because uh, sort of like the lack of control is interesting. Sometimes there's a sort of like surprises that happen. Uh, that you really didn't think about on the studio. And so even sometimes reacting to changes, uh, there are some beautiful things that happen naturally uh, in sort of like the real world. So um, even though it's much more difficult, I would say, uh, they're both difficult depending on, you know, the scale, the scope. But um, yeah, location work is something that for sure uh, that I prefer, uh, you know, bottom line. If we have to do it in the studio, it's really all about like, what are the things that make it look as real as possible? And you're you're working very hard to make those those uh, sort of like situations that sort of happen in front of you. Obviously, uh, when you dedicate like you know a week to a sequence, um, it's much more. It's a little bit easier to control in a studio environment. Um, but then when you take that studio environment and you make it outside the studio, you have the same sort of like. 
not restrictions, but same problems that arise. But um, yeah, so for me, it's a challenge to work in the studio, but an Mm. interesting challenge. You really have to put a lot of work into, uh, you know, the specific little details. And hopefully you don't leave anything out. Uh, Things that sort of naturally are there in the world. Is your philosophy just in general to always make the the studio sets as real as possible? Even if you're living in kind of these fantastical, you know, places, certainly like you did in Avatar and in, in, in Spider-Man as well. Well, no, I think the pro- uh, it depends on the project. I think it's all depends in, uh, dependent on what the director, director's uh, initial conception or his, of the film is. If he wants it to be stylized, then that's an approach or... I mean, for John, this film, uh, the thing that he kept repeating to me is that, you know, realism. He wanted it to be real. Um, and that that's reflecting even on the sets, uh, you know, basement sets. He really wanted this realistic uh, world uh, that was really important to him. So um, we react on that vision or, you know, the concept has all to do with that, that sort of statement that the director establishes. Let's talk about one of those sets, Darren, in particular the Sanctum Sanctorum set that uh, I know that, you know, both of you guys had a hand in for sure. And it was something that, Darren, you you thought would be interesting for our audience. Um, talk to me about that. Why, why is that one of the ones that you, you know, feel the, feel not necessarily the best about, but something that you wanted to bring to our show today? Well, I think the sanctum, uh, the the sanctum was such an important part of our story in so many ways, and obviously, it's got uh, a lot of history in the Marvel universe, uh, in the Avengers movies, and Doctor Strange, of course. Um, and Charlie Wood, the production designer on, uh, on Avengers and, and Doctor Strange, uh, conceived the original foyer, which we rebuilt. Uh, we knew we were going to do it differently this time around. We wanted to have a significant weather event. Um, it ended up being snow, a big blizzard, a portal had been opened and left, uh, left open upstairs, which kind of, uh, was the leading art direction for all the snow and the direction of the snow. Um, uh, so we had to rebuild that set and they've re- I think Marvel's rebuilt that set three or four times now. Uh, but our version had to be waterproof. Uh, obviously we had a lot of snow effects and water effects, so we had to kind of customize it for that. But the exciting part was going downstairs for us. I mean, that was a new set, and that was kind of conceiving um, what the sanctum could be in this kind of underground, undercroft, uh, layer ancient chamber. Uh, and that was wide open for us. Uh, and so it was a new dimension on, on kind of Doctor Strange, a little bit into his personality. And there was a great joke to be had there. We wanted to go down there and turn on the lights, and the first thing you feel like is you're in your grandma's basement. You know, with the Christmas decorations and uh, you know, and the and all the all the decor you'd find in a very kind of typical uh, you know kind of New York underground kind of basement. And then as you work your way through it, you kind of realize that there's a there's a big aperture and it's opening up into a really ancient space, this ancient chamber, which kind of for us grounded the Sanctum Sanctorum in New York. So the whole idea was for us was this ancient chamber. Uh, was was found by the monks uh, in um, way way back when New York was was first being built five points, um, and so the the idea was that was kind of the anchor point for why they put the sanctum in that specific spot. So that was just a really fun set to do, uh, and you know conceiving that with Mara, we 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 had one we had a few big sound stages. That was one of our biggest sound stages at Pinewood, now Trillith. Uh, 
And the sight lines were really important. We wanted to take full advantage of, of some height. So coming down from the staircase, coming down into the basement, and then keep coming down lower and lower. So there's a significant elevation drop from the very from when you first kind of come down the first staircase into the into the basement and then down into the ancient chamber. And then just how we framed it and how we wanted to make it very cinematic uh, in the aspect ratio when you look down into the ancient chamber, uh, which becomes kind of the jail cells for all of our villains later in our mm-hmm. story. Uh, but it was just a really, really fun set to do. Uh, it was tricky. It was a full, complete set ceiling. We uh, we designed this amazing roll-away ceiling so the whole piece could kind of come away and could be lit from the top. We had little pockets. Uh, what's one of the things Mauro uh, and I discussed early on was how do we get some light into this cave-like structure and kind of opened up a couple holes and a couple gaps and a couple of and working with Rosemary Brandenburg, our set decorator and a couple light sources and how we were going to light this very dark kind of, uh, you know, undercroft set. So yeah. Really and I'm curious and I'm curious about that as well, because Morrow, you, you, you see the designs, you know, you're going to be underground, um, a, a new environment that we haven't seen before. So there's not necessarily a reference for it. You can kind of, you know, it's a blank canvas for you. Talk to me about how you kind of worked with Darren to make, you know, his vision of that set into something more conducive for filmmaking. Well, I mean, that set was very interesting because it was very challenging uh, because the discussion was, you know, conceptually, it's a dark environment. And that's always the most difficult when people want to sort of like see a dark environment and they write it. uh, There is a we have to be able to see it somehow. Uh, but yet it's a dark environment and it always bothers me when it's so bright in a, you know, in a scene and everybody's pretending like it's dark. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a huge challenge. Um, one of the biggest challenges is to create darkness. It's not only to create light, but to create darkness. Uh, why it's well, because you want to be able to see in that darkness. Otherwise, you know, why are we there? And you want to be able to see these characters. So the challenge is, being able to see the characters and not make it look like, you know, you're in the middle of like, you know, a supermarket. Uh, so uh, the challenge there was like, what is the color of that light? How could we get any light in there? Because it was a solid set. So with Darren, we worked really d- hard along with the gaffer, Josh Davis, and, you know, trying to carve out space and trying to find little spaces that we could just sneak light in just to light the set a lot of times, really just to light the set. Because uh, you still have to light the set, even if you want it to be dark. You want to be able to see things in the background. You want to be able to see things in the foreground and play with that foreground background as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, to compose things. So it was a very challenging. And we spent a, a good, like, two days pre-lighting that set where we tried a bunch of things out. And John was there, actually. John came to the pre-light because... We wanted to make sure that it was, you know, dark and that he should be involved because I'm obviously new to the project and I want his uh, his sort of like interpretation of what what it looks like because I'm the one coming into his world. So we have to be able to find it together as opposed to me forcing somebody into something. So it was quite challenging. Um, but, you know, I, I think in the end uh, we did achieve something that was like, no, pretty interesting and you know gratifying. Well, what was one of the more innovating, innovative ways that you brought light into that space? Because Darren had mentioned that you did have a, an actual ceiling that you know you were able to open on occasion, mm-hmm. but still you have a ceiling to contend with. Um, 
So can you bring up one or two challenges of that set and how you overcame how you overcame them? Well, a lot of times, I mean, sure, we could light the whole thing from the ceiling, but it looks like you lit the whole thing from the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not a boxing match. So, we I didn't want it to look like a boxing match. That only the center of the of the whole uh, you know cavernous sort of like you know this cellar is lit only by the center of the room. So the challenge is like, how do you show something that's deep in the cellar? Like, how do you light something like that is a, like a cell or a jail cell uh, that's deep, deep into the cellar? How do you light that and be able to see it without any light source? There are no practicals. Mm. Um, so we came up with, you know, carving because the set was, I don't know if I should say the set is made out of foam. I don't know if we want to get into that detail. Sure. Darren. Why sure. not? I didn't, I didn't um, carve it out of stone. No. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it, though. Good. Um, so a lot of... You, you know, can give have... away all sorts of secrets on this show. It's, <laughs> we're among friends. People will keep it quiet. So we had to, like, actually cut into, you know, the foam to get some light sources to just rake the edges of things that are in, I the, thought... in the depth. What kind of light sources are you putting in there? Just, like, LED strips. Darren, sorry, we're speaking over you. What were you about to say? I was going to say one of the ingenious things that Mara did was uh, indirect lighting on the inside of the cells uh, because we had to have like a force field that kind of kept them, uh, kept our characters in their cells. And there was a very soft kind of rim light around the edges uh, that were buried with LEDs that kind of helped with visual effects and kind of helped that force field uh, kind of put in, but it was just enough edge lighting to help kind of define the spaces of each one of those cells individually. What were the LEDs you were poking or carving spots for in that foam wall? Well, they have a ribbon LED, uh, LEDs, which are a series of LED lights and a ribbon that you can, it's sort of like a piece of tape that you could yeah. uh, put in different places. But, you know, it, all of this, uh, the technology on a film like this is so interesting because Everything is on a dimmer and everything must be programmed uh, so you're able to recreate it later. And so the, there's an incredible amount of pre-rigging before we even get there. So we can, you know, work the environments and turn things off quickly and change the color of things within seconds. Um, it requires a huge amount of pre-rigging and programming of those specific units that are all in those specific parts of the set. Um, so that is like, a part that a lot of people don't know about, and I think on this film more than anything else for me, is LED technology has changed so much and has um, brought something so interesting to the industry because of those uh, those rapid changes and uh, computerizing all your lights. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned LED because we have a question from um, Warner Image on Instagram asking if you used any of those LED walls. Um, you know, this kind of the green screen replacement where you have the actual like, you know, scene or whatever, your background plate on the wall. Did you did you use any of those on the film? No, we did experiment with those at the beginning of the project. We did uh, do a test, uh, but we ended up uh, uh, not being very happy with that test. And we wanted to have a sort of like stronger light sources. Um, and the LED panels are <clears throat> definitely great for uh, ambience and sort of like soft light sources. But the minute you're trying to recreate the sun, um, it's just, it's not possible. 
because basically whatever that screen emits is what is projected on uh, the actors' faces. Uh, so we ended up, uh, you know, not not doing any LED walls. I have used LED walls in uh, past projects, and uh, Darren's used uh, used them as well. Uh, but this one just it didn't work out. It, it was just not the right tool. I almost I tried, and but it just not wasn't the right tool. How do you incorporate LED walls into your workflow, Darren? I know you didn't do you didn't use it on Spider-Man: No Way Home, but as you know, from your standpoint of a, as a production designer, how do you incorporate them, and, and or why? What what would a situation be where you said this is perfect for an LED wall? Well, I did a project before LED walls existed called Oblivion, where we did a front projection, uh, a full-on front projection, twenty-two synced projectors. Uh, for mm. Sky. Uh, it was for a Sky Tower set. So it was up in the air. So uh, that was the perfect application because it was it was illuminating the set. It was everything was in camera uh, and it was all soft clouds and soft weather. It wasn't hard architecture and hard you know, right angles and lines that would have to kind of line up. So that was like a perfect situation for something like that. Uh, we use them nowadays for a lot of car insert photography and things like that to get a lot of motion going by. Uh, I haven't uh, jumped into the full Unreal Engine project yet where we're actually designing foreground set pieces to be completely in front of a full digital wall. Something I'm very interested in doing, but I just haven't I haven't uh, had a project that quite needed that level of of of, uh, of or that technique yet that was relying that heavily on that. Yeah. We've got a general question about lighting um, from Blake Studwell on YouTube wanting to know, and this is for probably for both of you guys, but we'll start with you, Mauro. Are you concerned with motivating light or is it more about what looks best for you? Well, uh, again, I'm reacting to, you know, the director wanted to sh uh, wants to shoot a realistic looking project. Um, not necessarily, I mean, I don't necessarily, uh, so really that sort of like sort of like conceptual uh, springboard should be uh, the motivating sort of like a conception of any kind of lighting. In other words, if uh, the director wants realism, then we must motivate the light sources because that's, that's what realism is about, uh, show, showing light sources and having it look like uh, it's in the scene and uh, making things look like uh, the lamp that's in the shot is lighting the actor as opposed to a movie light. So I think it it's all has to do with the concept of the film. Let's take a moment and talk about Filmmakers Academy and a course that is near and dear to my heart. It's called Commercial Directing Masterclass. And its trainer is Jordan Brady, who you guys already know, I'm sure, from his podcast, uh, Respect the Process. Jordan, uh, I'm two podcasters. First of all, how are we going to keep this brief? But we'll try. <laughs> I will try. Uh, you've you've upped the ante. You've upped the game here because this is video, and no one told me. And it's a good thing I'm naturally handsome. I don't have a bad side. You could shoot me from the left or the right, but we're not here to talk about that. Uh, commercial directing masterclass is basically. Uh, a deep dive into how to manage your career as a commercial director, whether you're starting, whether you've been doing spots for 10, 15 years. I give you secret voodoo tricks to manage a career, run the set, and get the most out of your performers and your script. I would say that the real key, though, you get is the behind the scenes where you watch yours truly uh, interact with the ad agency, 
and the actors and the crew. Because those are the three plates that you're kind of juggling, right? You, you, the agency hired you, you want to collaborate. The actors are your uh, mouthpiece, and the crew, they do the bulk of the work. So you have to uh, keep all those moving parts flowing. Commercial directing is such a different beast, and that is why I absolutely love this course, and I know you guys will as well. The whole course is available now. Check it out for yourself, filmmakersacademy.com. Let's talk about the rooftop scene when um, all of the Peter Parkers meet. We've got a question from Logan Astrup on YouTube. Wanted to know how you approached that scene. And Darren, we'll start with you. Well, we, we started conceptualizing artwork really early. And it was, you know, and I'm still amazed that we were able to keep that as secret, you know, for as long as we, we have. I mean, it was, I think it was, it's a testament to, to how diligent the production was about protecting that concept. Uh, but we started with lots of different concept art about how we were going to get these three characters together in lots of different ways and how we were going to first kind of, um, you know, how we were going to reveal them. Ended up being at the high school. We ended up building that as a set. Um, we had, we ended up having a stage 14, which was kind of our catch all stage. So it was tons and tons of smaller pieces of sets that we could wheel in and wheel out under a, a pretty complicated lighting package. And that was probably the biggest set it was the, the, that we wheeled into that configuration. It was three large pieces that made up the high school rooftop. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we kind of conceived it from what the existing uh, high school in Queens is, but it's, a, it's kind of a stretch as far as a, a little bit of a cheat, just to kind of make sure the proportions worked for the three characters and how they worked on the bell tower and how they kind of came out and, and where they were kind of all... Um, kind of uh kind of you know, how we kind of compose them in that in that one specific set but uh yeah it was a pretty traditional straightforward set um i'll let Mara speak to it a little bit more about how he how he ended up shooting it yeah i mean how did you light it and how did you approach that scene um well one thing darren did mention is we moved that set outside once as well so <laughs> oh right. you did because yes um john was really adamant about things looking realistic and you know he sort of, and I sort of got connected to the, I understood like we want things to be, if we're, if we're supposed to be outside, then we should put the set outside as well. So that set, <laughs> when we did a day exterior, around. which we see at the beginning of the film, um, when sort of like uh, Dom is laying uh, back, uh, they're laying down and they're sort of like talking about. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was outside. And then, so we brought it inside again, as far as like, how I approached that uh, set as far as like when the three Spider-Men came to, I just went for it. I went for mm. style. I just went for really stylized lighting. I didn't really, you know, because it was going to be outside at night. And I felt like it was one of those moments where um, it was such a sort of a, a breakthrough for everybody to see all those characters that I, I kind of treated it very much like in a classical sort of like, this is like a Roman sculpture. And we should, uh, you know, be able to see everybody and, uh, you know, uh, with darkness and everybody has their light. And that's kind of the way I approach it. I love that. That was an amazing week, too, when they all showed up, when we had all those actors together. It was a pretty special week. Marla, I, I can't, can't believe that we... stayed a secret. 
I know, I know. Mara, did we have the 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 shield, the fallen Captain America Statue of Liberty shield? Was it on the right side and then the high school's on the left side on stage 14 when we did that? I think we did them together. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the shield yeah. was, yeah, one side of this. Yeah. yeah, so we had this it basically <laughs> just to try and keep a lid on, on, on what we were doing. We had those two set two set pieces where those three actors were, were going to be on. And so we kind of jammed them into one soundstage so we could try and control it the best we could coming and going on anybody with any knowledge of what was going on. Um, so, yeah, we had the high school next to the shield, which was which was a crazy week. I just remember walking into that stage and seeing those three guys in their chairs, you know, waiting to roll. It was just like on their <laughs> uniforms. And it was just like crazy. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about use of green screen in the film and particularly how that gets sort of put into production design. I mean, are you also involved in the design of what is going to eventually be on those screens? Um, Yeah. So so talk to me about kind of the way, Darren, you approach incorporating so many visual effects, so much green screen in a film like Spider-Man. Well, I come from visual effects. My background is visual effects. So I used to be an art director at a, a visual effects company called Digital Domain, which is where Kelly Port, our visual effects supervisor, uh, where I met Kelly almost 20 years ago. Um, so I come from that world. And I, you know, very early in my career, I saw the need for designers that could kind of bridge the gap between traditional construction, sorry, traditional set construction and visual effects design. So that really interested me. So I'm always designing for that. And, you know, to me, that's really, really critical from a design standpoint that there's a continuity between the sets, uh, the physical sets, and that you don't even understand where the lines blur and cross over into visual effects. It's a big pet peeve of mine when I can kind of see two different designs of a movie the physical design and then the visual effects design. It's really important to me that those are integrated. So, um, you know, we try and build as much as we can. We want to give the, you know, the director, the DP, the actors as much physical scenery <clears throat> that they can react to as possible. It's not always the most, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, efficient way to go about filmmaking. So we, we obviously rely on visual effects when we can or, or when we know that it's going to be such a massive extension that there's just no way that it's going to be cost effective to build um, or we just don't have the time or the space to build. So all those factors go into it. Uh, how much of the percentage of, of, of a scene is going to be uh, done on a process screen. Uh, but we always try and make sure that the DP uh, and the director have an understanding of what they're going to see when the set falls off into that blue screen. So whether it's concept art or it's 3D models, I constantly grab Morrow and be like, hey, Morrow, here's my model. Here's, you know, I'll rotate around the set. What the, you know, here's the physical set that we're going to that we're going to have for on stage. Here's where the extension is going to be uh, working with Kelly Port, too. Uh, I love to make sure all the assets and all the builds that are coming out of my department is in the pipeline that goes right into visual effects as well. So whether we're doing cruder models, but the basic proportions and the basic concepts are there, and then we get handed off to visual effects to flesh out. I like to make sure that the art direction at least is controlled as much as I can within my department. Yeah, and Jamie Dickinson on Twitter is asking about the way you light for green screen, Morrow, because, uh, like, do you know ahead of time, and it sounds like you do, Darren just explained, but can you talk to us more about how do you prepare yourself so that you know exactly what's going to be on those screens and you can light accordingly? Well, um, 
Again, I mean, we work with previses, which like is a big uh, help because we kind of have an idea, some sort of idea of what's going on in the background. Because um, I simply have to react with what's going on in the background. Otherwise, it, it doesn't look like it's the same environment. Mm. So uh, when lighting blue screen, you have to find those interactive moments, um, sort of like tricks along the way that convince you or try to sort of steer you in the sort of sleight of hand that you're looking at something that's, you know, foreground only. And you're trying to make that environment uh, together, sort of correlate the two environments. So uh, every aspect of blue screen has to do with interactive lighting for me. I have to always try to find what it is that's going to make those two environments uh, uh, go together. Is there a way that you can like see some kind of a representation active on set, like in your monitors. I feel like I've seen stuff like that online where you can see, you know, they'll have a camera set up and they just throw, I mean, it doesn't look perfect, but they'll throw like the background in there just so you can get an idea of what's there in your monitors. Is that something, is that technology you guys are utilizing? Uh, I mean, we did on Avatar when it was first sort yeah. of like introduced uh, something called Simulcam. So in your uh, camera monitor, you'd actually see that environment that's going to be recreated digitally later. Uh, so those two environments are interacting with each other was very important on Avatar because uh, foreground characters had to interact with uh, whatever was happening outside the room or outside the window. Uh, so it was a technology that was really important. Um, and then on another film I worked on called Real Steel, uh, where it was, uh, I don't know if you guys saw it, but it was about fighting robots and all the sort of motion capture of the robots and all the fights were done beforehand and cut together. Mm. So when we went to location, we could play back whatever uh, was motion captured in our monitor and do the tilts according to that background. Uh, so we could actually have a live mocap inside our camera that was just basically capturing plates. It was, you know, an environment was like, we recreated the boxing ring, but there was nothing in the ring because it was all done, you know, with the all done beforehand. So it was like a technology that was really important uh, for those two projects. I'm not necessarily sure that we had that kind of uh, need or uh, necessity on this project that had to be, you know, that that needed that kind of technology. I want to talk about the camera and lens package for the film. What did you shoot on? We shot on the Alexa LF, which is a large format sensor, uh, about 4K of resolution, um, and we shot RAW. And we also uh, utilized PandaVision lenses called Panda Speeds, um, all prime lenses, uh, ranging from 100 millimeter all the way down to uh, a 21. Was that a decision that you had made? Because I, I know you, you came onto the film a little bit late in pre-production. Was that a decision you made or something that you had gone through testing or? Well, they actually preliminarily, they had already sort of like booked the LF and Panda speeds. Uh, but I did uh, go through a series of, I looked first, I looked at the test that uh, they had shot and it really didn't do me any good. I, I really st still needed to approach it myself. Yeah. I'd never worked with these lenses before. So I was really curious about uh, using them. So, uh, you know, I, devised the test uh, very early on in production that I could uh, test all these lenses, and I found them very interesting. What did you like about them? 
Um, I really like the sharpness and also uh, sometimes how it fell off. Uh, the depth of field of the lenses, the bouquet of the lenses was very interesting. Um, the long end of the lenses were quite interesting in their bouquet. Mm. And I also really love the speed uh, because they're very high speed lenses all the way up to like, uh, you know, you could uh, T14, which is like wow. you know, amazing. And so I've, it, when a, a lens is that sensitive, usually every, they put the best technology uh, towards those lenses because you have to think it has to work in that big of an aperture. So the whole plane of the lens must be able to have a, a good focal plane. Um, so um, that was interesting to me as well. And it turned out to be, you know, I did carry some zooms at the beginning of the project, but this was very much a film that we dedicated uh, specific lenses uh, for specific use. So we, we kind of stayed off those zooms and really stuck to primes. How many cameras did you roll? We had a total of like three cameras, but we, we rolled two cameras always. Hmm. Um, and we, you know, we actually had four cameras, I'm sorry. But um, so the Alexa LF, because of, uh, uh, because of the technology, can shoot high speed. So we also carried a Mini LF, which is a much more portable version of that camera. But the Mini LF is not able to do anything past 30 frames per second. So I thought it was important to have a camera that was able to do more than 30 frames per second. That's why we chose, you know, two LFs and two mini LFs as opposed to all mini LFs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, oh, God, I was just thinking about, oh, filtration. Um, I want to talk, are you throwing any filters on these lenses as well? Or did you like them right out of the gate? Um, I usually don't like the filter that much uh, because I, I feel like, you know, it's a strange sort of thing thing that you have between the audience this gauze i'd rather do it with lighting mm. maybe that's kind of like what my background is in but i'd rather uh sculpt the face as opposed to like filter it and i feel like filtering it sometimes just kind of like i, I feel like i'm cheating or what am i you know what am i doing but I, it's just a personal thing i'm not saying like <laughs> you know i it, so i really didn't do that much filtration are you tinkering around with the lenses at all, though, or did you just like them as is? We did have them detuned quite a bit, uh, so you know the end, uh, the edges would fall out of focus a bit more, and it didn't look so clinical. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, I think it also contributed to the realism those lenses because you you really are bringing a lot of realism to a show that has tons of special uh, visual effects. I think it was a nice choice, and Darren. I, how important is the lens and camera package to you? Is that is that something that you think about when you're designing your sets, or do you stay out of that? Uh, it's not. I mean, it's not a huge factor for me as much. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm more about making sure the aspect ratio and framing for all the master shots, uh, and the you know, and the sets can be shot and can kind of and, and the masters can kind of be established, and then obviously all the detail going in and picking off all the all the angles inside, but I usually approach most of the sets from all the masters and just trying to make sure that I'm not boxing a DP into something that he can't, you know, he can't quite capture and get wide and kind of understand the scope and the space and the proportion that we're in. When you have such beautiful sets that are so detailed and obviously there's so much money and budget and time going into these things, do you tend, Mauro, to shoot a little bit 
more closed down so you can see them and have a little bit more Christmas in the background? Or do you, or do you like to just kind of go with a softer background? I know you had mentioned you love those lenses because they went up to T, you know, T4, mm-hmm. T2. Um, in a show like Spider-Man with so much set design, so much art direction, do you tend to, you know, close up a little bit? Uh, well, I, I just think it depends on the scene again. You know, like if it's something that we really, uh, for instance, the scene that in the diner when sort of uh, Peter goes back and tries to uh, sort of recapture their relationship and nobody knows him and he recognizes him anymore. I thought it was really important to have shallow focus. So I, I think all of those sort of like choices are made according to the story as opposed to, you know, like whatever uh, maybe. But, you know, there there are times, let's say, that I remember there was a time where, like, even the conceptual art of, you know, the rooftop that Darren had already drawn really uh, influenced the way that I shot the scene and, you know, even made me, like, suggest things to John constantly about how we should stage it um, because I wanted to see that space and I wanted to. So I think it's all, uh, you know, story driven. Darren, be honest. Does it kill you when you put so much effort into a scene and the whole thing is shallow? <laughs> you must no, be like, God no. damn it. I just want to see the work I put in. <laughs> no, honestly, it doesn't. I, you know, you have to approach as a, as a designer, as an art director, you have to approach everything that everything could be seen. Uh, and you have to be prepared to show everything. But you don't want, I mean, to me, the best stuff is the suggestive stuff. I don't, I don't expect everything to be seen in every detail. Uh, I just want to give the DP and the director that choice. You know, I want them to be able to look into any corner, any pocket that they want to. But it's all about the story. It's all about servicing the story. And Mara's so right. It's all about scene by scene, shot by shot, what needs to be conveyed to tell the strongest story possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if that means things go soft, uh, that's totally fine by me. As long as the essence is captured, um, you know, that's all that we, you know, we strive for. You do your, you, you know, you plan, you plan to everything to be in shot, but you know, it's never going to happen. And you just want to make sure you give, you give your team, uh, the best stuff possible so they can make the best movie possible. We've got a question from Logan Astrop wanting to know how you approach that opening tracking shot um, of the apartment at the beginning of the film. And I'm going to ask you both, but I want to start with you, Darren, on the way you approach designing a shot like that. Well, to be honest, that shot was not the, the, the conceit of the set. Uh, you know, the set was kind of uh, came together from an amalgamation of a few different uh, historical pieces of, 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 of Spider-Man movies uh, and from Endgame, I believe. I believe at the end of Far From Home, they've uh, they, they, they definitely moved apartments conceptually after the blip. So we had only gotten a, a snippet of what the apartment was, and we had to kind of extrapolate from that. Uh, we had Peter's bedroom because that had been established, but the rest of the apartment really hadn't been established. So we kind of recreated that from scratch. Uh, we knew the different beats of the story. We knew they were going to come in through the window. We knew the gag. We were going to see Happy Hogan um, and, um, and Marissa uh, or Aunt May's character uh, kind of being introduced in that scene. 
but I believe it was it was it was after the set had kind of been designed and we kind of laid it out that John kind of reverse engineered with Morrow that tracking shot of running around the apartment, going from window to window, and all those different story beats. They were all scripted and written, but how it was all kind of stitched together was was uh, was kind of after the fact, probably after the set had been built and been walked by by John and Morrow. I would assume when they kind of started to figure out that that piece. Yeah, Mara, why don't you tell me from your perspective how that scene came together? Well, um, it was going to always start with, uh, you know, Tom coming through the window with MJ. And then, you know, we were going to eventually, like, John just came up with this idea that he wanted it all to be handheld. So it was one long take, one long shot, uh, sort of like the sequence um, is we start at the door and we travel all the way to the bedroom uh, to experience it. Uh, the same as like Aunt May's experiencing it and uh, uh, Happy's experiencing it as well. So we're, you know, we're discovering it uh, as an audience the same way everybody else is. And so we did, you know, several takes and there was just one long sort of handheld shot that we wanted to really create an energy uh, that he was able to go through the apartment and, uh, you know, and we, so we originally didn't plan on like, like Darren is saying, like we didn't actually pre-light that, but when, uh, you know, the director has a, a sort of instinct like that, it's great to follow it because exciting things happen, um, you know, as opposed to like fighting it and like, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, uh, when there's like a great energy, like you follow that energy. And that's what that was all about. Now he's going to open that window. What happens? What's outside the window? I'm not sure. So there's a bright light. There's sunlight. There's even like a helicopter outside the window. So. We, we just kind of like, you know, threw it all together uh, as exciting as we could make it uh, all one handheld sequence. I imagine camera movement plays a giant role in Spider-Man. I mean, it's it's all about <laughs> moving around, not just in action films in general, which is certainly true. But there is a there is a certain movement to Spider-Man that you kind of have to capture cinematically. Can you talk to us about the way you approach that? I mean, I think we, uh, again, it's like shot by shot and conceiving things like what a lot of times it's really uh, like how trying to find that specific scale of where, what we're doing. Um, you know, how do we show that? Because in a blue screen environment, what is the lens that's going to make us feel uh, the most like we're in a real uh, location? So uh, camera movement, uh, it's not it's not something that. Uh, was so literal. We tried not to be so literal about camera movement, and we we kind of stayed away from those uh, uh, sort of push-ins that uh, a lot of people do on characters. We didn't really. It was we really let characters uh, sort of uh, play in that in that field as opposed to like really restrict their movement hmm. and try to like uh, manipulate them in any way whatsoever. Of course, you know scale. We, we did several crane shots, and that's part of the film. And how are you going to show scale on a film like this is, you know, you create these uh, crane shots and drone shots and, you know, exciting camera moves with high-speed camera cars. And um, as, as much of that as you can add to the action uh, makes it, you know, look uh, much more incredible and uh, it's sort of like, you know, uh, interactive. Let's discuss the high-bridge sequence. I know, Mauro, this is something you wanted to talk about for sure, and I'd love to get Darren's input as well, but we'll start with you. Um, 
you know, I asked at the beginning of the show, is there a particular scene, something maybe that's more challenging um, that you want to discuss? And this was the first thing out of your mind. And I'd love to hear why and, um, you know, how you approach that sequence. Uh, well, it was really challenging because basically, you know, we didn't have a high bridge. We had a parking lot with, <laughs> you know, in Atlanta with changing weather conditions and, you know, a blue screen, a massive blue screen. And, you know, we have sun that moves on that blue screen. And, uh, you know, and Darren had to create like the ground of that highway, which was like massive. How long was that? How long was that uh, ground? I think it was like something. What is it like? Five hundred feet? I don't remember. No, it was, it was about a football field. I think about three hundred. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it was, like, yeah, it was big. It was big. It was so it's a hundred yards of like you know cement, grooved cement uh, that he had to kind of recreate. Uh, you know, like uh, the top of the high bridge. And so well, you set that all up, and now you're like, okay, we have nothing. We're not really at the high bridge. How are we going to do this? <laughs> so the challenge is like, how are we going to spend the whole day? filming and you know uh sort of like really planning with the first ad of like what you're doing at a specific time of the day and be able to use the sun so it doesn't look like you know from one shot to the next that it's like a disaster uh, and it doesn't look like the same day so the challenge for me was to make that look you know realistic like we're actually and the visual effects were amazing in that sequence i thought he did oh, an yeah. incredible job. Yeah, Kelly. Um, and all of that, you know, obviously, like, and also Kelly, the visual effects supervisor, was crucial even in pre-production with light studies and providing me light studies as to what the sun was doing in a specific location. And, you know, uh, downloading that and we, we designed things around, you know, those specific things. So I thought... When I saw the film, I was convinced I was in the high bridge. That's why I say <laughs> that was the sequence. I mean, you know, that's that's really the reason. Well, what is something that you do? And I know I know you said it was particularly challenging, but I'd love to just get a little bit of like maybe was there was there something that you did to give it that realism? I mean, you're outside. So you have the benefit or I guess detriment of having real life around you. But are you just sort of you know, working with the sun, diffusing? Are you like, what? what's your approach to a scene like that? Okay, so uh, like a lot of things, what I like to do is work with the sun. Um, so we kind of like stage um, all the scenes around the sunlight. Uh, what specific uh, direction are we shooting in a specific time of the day? So uh, I try to map out the whole day according to what the sun is doing and yeah. which direction we're looking. Sometimes it's challenging because... It you know, uh, you may be looking in a direction I don't want to look at, uh, but we have to find ways to sort of like approach it and find, uh, you know. So the real, it, it's it takes so much planning and like everybody being involved, you know, with because uh, eventually we have this previous to work with, and that's like, you know, this sort of like uh, video game quality of the sequence that everybody agrees to shooting and they everybody loves so. We're gonna we're gonna make it. We're gonna make them. Uh, we understand what we're shooting already. So by breaking those specific little shots from that previous together, we're able to really program our day, and you know, try to be successful to a certain point to get the whole sequence done in a specific uh, uh, time time period. Yeah, Darren, how challenging was that scene for you? It was tricky. I was just gonna mention. I remember one of the hardest calculations was. 
we built a giant steel three wall psych. So a giant process screen, blue screen, kind of outdoor steel structure that could stand the weather uh, and the wind uh, in Atlanta. Uh, and we had to build this parking lot or the, the top of the bridge, but just trying to figure out how far off the back wall so we wouldn't have th- shadows thrown from the wall onto the set. Mm. But uh, in that time of year, so lots of calculations, figuring out where the sun's going to be at that time of year, which direction this psych had to be built, how far off the wall so the shadows wouldn't fall on it uh, or the minimum amount of shadows that would fall onto the set throughout the day. It's just a really, really tricky, complicated uh, kind of setup. It wasn't a trick, a hard thing to build. It was more just to make sure we put it in the right spot. We built the walls at the right height. We had enough room to work around it. And then that all had to be torn down, and that became Happy's, that became Happy's apartment at the end of the movie, too, the giant courtyard. So that was this giant basic playground that we built for the studio, which was an amazing – it's a really amazing resource for them. Uh, but it was, it was amazing. That was the other thing I wanted to mention is – I've never seen a lighting rig more impressive in my life than what Mario put together and his team put together for Happy's Why? apartment. It was enormous. I don't know how big those two cranes were, but there was two construction cranes that built skyscrapers, basically, that were dangling two gigantic lighting rigs over this exterior set uh, to give it that Long Island City, that that illuminated city feel. But it was just so impressive. I mean, I don't know what the specs were tomorrow on those lighting packages, but I got pictures of those things. I'd never, never been on a set that had that much. Can you talk to us about that lighting rig since we're on it, Mauro? Um, the night exterior of, yeah, it happens. That was such a massive light. It's true. It was massive. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, the, the thing was, I mean, you know, there's a huge sequence there with interactive lighting, explosions, and, you know, yeah. the Green Goblin comes back in, and there's, like, green explosions and, and not regular explosions, not just, like, pyro explosions. But so the lighting rig had to, like, incorporate all of that into it. Um, you know, because we weren't just dealing with like, oh, just lighting a night exterior. We had to we had to account for like, what are the effects here? What's going to happen when when Green Goblin explodes through the the front window? What's going to happen when the Sandman like you know creates a uh, you know this this hurricane? And what happens when Electro has like this like electric shock and the, the whole building is sort of you know in this state of like you know so. I think a lot of that had, you know, those were, we had to have interactive lighting along with, you know, the lights that were just lighting the night exterior. And so everything became huge, you know, when you're dealing with, with that, uh, that, that element alone. And, you know, uh, lucky we do have the resources on a film like this. And the crew uh, was just amazing uh, as far as like the pre-rig crew and the, the main crew and keeping everything moving. I mean, sure. it, it was mind blowing. I know at one point we we decided that we do we were filming a lobby and it was all just exposed uh, to light, and we decided we were gonna just make a blue screen instead of, you know, just surround the place in blue screen <laughs> so we're able to film in the daytime um, instead of you know filming the whole sequence at night. It would be better for everybody, uh, you know. We could do certain things. We could hide uh, what we were doing inside the set because a lot of people didn't want to expose to the world what we were doing. So mm. all of a sudden, we made this sort of change. Uh, we decided to do a night interior and surround the whole place with blue screens. And the crew completely, you know, 
uh, reacted on it. And within, you know, the next day we had blue screen surrounding the place and we were able to huge. film it that way. You know, it was massive, yeah. huge. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot really, I, I have to thank this uh, very impressive and incredible crew uh, to be able to, to have been able to do that. Because just the idea, just having the idea is just one thing, but actually, uh, you know, creating it is another. Well, the film is fantastic. Box office loves it. Critics love it. It's just such a success. You guys did an amazing job. So thank you so much for coming on Go Creative Show to talk to us all about it. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. I want to thank production designer Darren Guilford and cinematographer Mauro Fiore from Spider-Man No Way Home. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. I learned a ton. So I hope you all out there did as well. So please let us know what you think of the show. We love your feedback and certainly love your questions. We used a ton of them in this episode because they were great. So for all of you that gave us questions, thank you. And uh, we really do appreciate that. I also want to thank Filmmakers Academy for sponsoring this episode. Filmmakers Academy, master your craft at filmmakersacademy.com. And of course, I want to thank Connor Crosby from Ignition Visuals. He produces the show and puts it all together. And Dave Siegel mixes masters and makes the show sound so good. You can find him at siegelsound.com. Please don't forget, follow us on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the episode, but see it. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. Thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.